Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, we are recording on Groundhog Day, so our listeners mm-hmm. are going to hear this on the third or later. But I was thinking about the movie Groundhog Day and how, you know, in years past, I used to always watch it around this time of the year because it was really <laughs> funny to imagine a day that just repeated itself over and over again. Do you think that movie has kind of lost its mojo? Yeah, there's nothing about wanting to relive days that is appealing or entertaining in any way, shape, or form after the pandemic. Well, you know what else is funny is in that movie, Bill Murray's character uses the repeated days to try to improve himself. And like, I did nothing of the sort. Like, he's a better person than me. This piece of shit character (laughs) that is like, check out this jerk. He's a better person than me. He is. and And he can have it. You know, he can have it. Yeah. And groundhogs are weird anyway. So I don't, I think we should leave them alone. They're like giant rodents, right? Do you remember when Bill de Blasio kept dropping the groundhog? Didn't it die? Yeah. And it was a lady groundhog. Oh my gosh. That's what I woke up thinking about. (laughs) Why can't New York City elect a good mayor? Anyway, (laughs) let's get to the show. This week, we're joined by Robin Given, Grace Parra, and Kara Clank to tackle the following questions. What are Washington's least serious people whining about now? Which political figures are most and least fluent in the language of fashion? How do we check in on each other? And can tap dance heal what ails us? All this and more right now. Alyssa, how's the news this week? Erin, uh, I'd call it less than fair to Midland. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a yeah, on, on a scale of one to ten, it's about a three. Yeah, maybe three and a half, maybe. It's like three and a half in terms of goodness, not in terms of like direness or urgency. Correct, correct. Yeah, so let's get into what's dire and urgent. Um, so, you know, right now, Roe v. Wade is is pretty much done, which we've mm-hmm. been saying for quite some time. I three know years. That there's, for three years. years for for yeah. Since this podcast existed. Since yeah. Anthony Kennedy resigned, we were like, fuck, it's over. And uh, I think we were probably right. I take no pleasure in being right about that. But it seems pretty clear that the Supreme Court, uh, the 6-3 majority conservative Supreme Court, is going to gut Roe v. Wade um, when the uh, ruling comes down probably in June. So what is happening at the state level is Republican legislators are really getting horny about restricting abortion in their respective states as much as they possibly can with the anticipation that Roe will fall and their laws will actually be able to go into effect. Um, So we uh, have—I'm going to just list a few of these states. Nebraska— Nebraska has uh, introduced a new new bill to ban all abortions if if Roe v. Wade falls. Um, It's—I don't know. Do you think Roe v. Wade is going to fall and, like, all abortions can be banned? Do you think that's going to be something that can happen? Or do you think they're going to try to split the difference and be like— some abortions can be. Banned. I think they're. I think it's going to be a split. The it's going to be a. They're going to try to half measure it. I think because mostly, I just feel like they don't want to be protested or something. You know what I mean? Like I, 
I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to think they're going to half measure it, but God knows what they could actually do. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I was thinking about is, um, you know, Nebraska is is doing is doing this. Uh, Florida has yeah. also introduced um, a law that seems more like it will actually be able to go into effect because um, they are banning abortions after 15 weeks, which is, right. I believe, what the Miz- Mississippi law that is in question yep. in the in the case before the Supreme Court bans it at. Um, Arizona has uh, introduced the Arizona Heartbeat Act, which mimics that crazy Texas law that banned abortion anytime cardiac activity can be detected in a fetus. By the way, that that little flicker, the six week, that's not a heart. That is a that is cardiac activity, and I think that right. mischaracterizing it as a heart really gives fuel to the anti-abortion uh, fire. Um, there's also anti-abortion legislation on, uh, you know, on the table in Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Indiana is going to call a special session if Roe v. Wade falls to legislate uh, women's bodies. Um, Alyssa, why do you think they're calling this 15 weeks thing a compromise? Do you think that they're trying to sell this as something that isn't insane? Yeah, of course. They want to be like, like sometimes there's actually no such thing as compromise. There's like right and wrong. And in this instance, it's right and wrong. And no, they want to be like, see, America, we're here. We're trying to work with these crazy fringe lunatics, but they won't even come to the table on this 15 weeks. So no, I definitely think they're trying to sound like they're somehow reasonable and and here for it when like, fuck off, (laughs) just fuck off. Yeah, I, the 15 weeks thing seems like it's an attempt to seem reasonable given yeah. the established, like what they've established the parameters of the argument, which is that the current state of affairs is uh, is unreasonable, which is uh, abortions can't be restricted up to the point of viability unless it's in the interest of the state, which states have really pushed and pushed and right. pushed um, versus the other side of it. They've decided that the other side of the argument is no abortions for anyone after fetal cardiac activity can be detected, which is not what the other side of the the debate is. Right. The other side of the debate is abortions can be regulated. They're right. trying to paint it as though the other side is all abortions are banned. And so allowing this Mississippi law in Dobbs uh, versus Jackson Women's Health, allowing this 15-week ban to go into effect will appear to be a compromise to the public. Do not fall for it. Do it not fall not, for it. Not a fucking compromise. All of these Republican chuckle fucks across the country are trying to line up to have it so that women in their states, people who are pregnant in their states who do not want to give birth, cannot access the reproductive health care that they need. They're making it their business, and it is fucking bullshit. And this is why statewide elections matter. Yep. This is why it's really important to pay attention to you know what? Try switching off MSNBC. Not you, Alyssa. I know that you pay attention to your state you know and local me. politics. But switch off MSNBC, switch off CNN, and read your nearest local newspaper. Read whoever is on the your state capital beat. Read up on what is going on in your state, because that is where these laws are going to affect your life. If right. a federal abortion, if a federal uh, protections of abortion are struck down. Your state is where your rights are dictated. So you got to pay attention. Um, speaking of the Supreme Court. Oh. Speaking of the Supreme Court. Um, President Biden has pledged to nominate a black woman, a black justice. 
and um, to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, who is retiring. Um, what are some of the more interesting public statements that you've seen on this move, Alyssa? Okay, so many, Aaron. So the one, so the one that actually struck me the most because I never really know what he's doing was when Lindsey Graham said that elections have consequences, and you know, and he actually spoke to how one of the nominees who is who a potential rumored nominees who is from South Carolina, Michelle Childs, was like eminently qualified. I was like, what is this? What is this? even happening here. But mostly his colleagues have been like, what a political move. What a political move by Biden to say that he's going to nominate a black woman. And this was a campaign promise. And therefore everything about this, this process now is political. And it's like, fuck off. What are you even talking about? What are you even talking about? Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett. Like there is no, they have no their indignation is is trash, and they – I mean, it's just – nobody should even replay what they are saying uh, or report on it because it is – unless the sentence starts as, in another hypocritical move, dot, mm-hmm. dot, dot. It is not a serious argument, and it is being put forth by people who are not serious people. It is like – it's ridiculous for them to immediately come out and deride Biden's choice. There are a – there are many – female black judges and jurists who are exceptional and would do a, do a great job on the Supreme Court. And to come out immediately and say, like, this person is going to be a radical is crazy. You know who right. does have, like, a machine and a vetting process in place to vet justices to make sure that they only will do certain things when they reach the Supreme Court? Fucking Republicans do. Hello. The, the Federalist Society is their whole vetting mechanism. No justice, no conservative justice has been appointed to the Supreme Court in recent memory without being approved by the extremely conservative Federalist Society. So, like, Democrats don't have that machinery in place. It is more projection by conservatives. Um, I, I personally, the thing that really gets to me is the implication that a black woman wouldn't be qualified because she's just being chosen because she's black. Well, what about all of the white, you think all of the white men who were on the court, every single one of them was not chosen because they were white men? Like the implication is that white men have the qualifications and capacity and people who are not white men are somehow being given a favor. Um, it, It just... Well, and the other thing too, Erin, that's like that I have been frustrated with in the reporting when people are trying to like both sides this is that there is a huge difference between Joe Biden saying, even during the campaign, saying he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court so that the fucking Supreme Court looks like the country that it legislates or govern, whatever the fuck word would be, makes laws for. That that is so radically different than Trump saying that he would only appoint pro-life justices. There is a difference between saying that the that the bench should look like America and between saying that you will only appoint people that would only rule a certain way uh, uh, without nuance is essentially what Trump was saying on these policy issues. So it's so it's so hypocritical and gross and not the same thing. And also Reagan, uh, when he was running for president, said that he would nominate a woman during his campaign. So like, why is that different than this? It's just, Aaron, it's just more jiggery pokery on part yeah. of the Republicans. 
Absolutely. And I think that anybody who brings up the like, oh, affirmative action, blah, 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 is, like I said, not a person who is being serious and not a person to be taken seriously. Okay. So we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we have an interview with a person who I have looked up to for a long time, a great writer, but it just so happens that her column this week in the Washington Post is about Biden's Supreme Court nominee, and I can't wait to talk to her about it. We'll be right back. Okay, Alyssa, do you know why I dressed up for this podcast today? I think I have an idea, but please tell me. Yeah, I'm wearing a red lip. This is an audio medium. I've got a red lip on and a white canvas jumpsuit because the person that we are talking to today is one of the most astute, sharp, smart voices in fashion criticism, and I do not want to get red. So (laughs) joining us today is Robin Given. She is a senior editor at large for the Washington Post, where she's covered the intersection of fashion, culture, and politics. She has also authored several books, including The Battle of Versailles, The Night American Fashion, Stumbled into the Spotlight and Made History. And in 2006, she was the first fashion critic to earn a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. And also, she's a writer that I've looked up to since before I was a writer. So welcome. Welcome to Hysteria, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. And I fear that I've really let you down because I'm wearing a hoodie. <laughs> Don't. I know, but you look awesome. You're in good company over here, also in a hoodie. See, the critic doesn't need to dress to, like, you're the you're the fashion critic. You don't need to dress up. You can just, like, take a look at me and be like, she looks fine. She looks okay. <laughs> and that's enough for me. Um, but I, I want to start this conversation by talking about your most recent piece, which posted on Tuesday. Your most recent piece is about President Biden's soon-to-be-announced Supreme Court nominee. Uh, he's fulfilling a promise he made on the campaign trail, which is that he's going to nominate a Black woman to serve on the court. And that's caused a, I think, to use a technical term, a shit fit among conservative (laughs) (laughs) uh, white men. So why do you think that people like Ted Cruz are so upset about this promise? Well, you know, I think to some degree they're upset because they're always upset about something. Um, You know, the, the world as it changes and evolves just seems to have caused them or is causing them, uh, an incredible amount of agita, and this is just sort of adding to it. Um, but I, I also think that the fact that, um, you know, Biden said that it's time for a Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, it's beyond time for that to happen, and that he made a point of being quite intentional about that, I, I think has just caused them to start down this road that, I mean, I hesitate to use the word racist, but certainly has um, troubling racial stereotypes attached to uh, their language. Um, And I I think it's just sort of drawing out this incredible fear of the ways in which the culture is changing and the ways in which the power structure is shifting so that it's not solely in the hands of white men. And I think all those fears have unleashed a kind of illogic and a fear that is just really troubling. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I wanted to read a little um, excerpt from the piece uh, because I thought it was so great. You wrote, when Trump promised to nominate a woman to fill the seat left vacant by Ginsburg, that decision was greeted with a nod and polite applause. During Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation in 2020, conservatives repeatedly referenced her seven children. They marveled at her ability to balance her maternal responsibilities with her professional accomplishments, and they oozed admiration for her devotion to family. They planted her atop a pedestal of divine femininity, a kind of glorification that rarely shines on black women. I thought that was really great. I was imagining if uh, Biden nominated a black woman with seven children, the way that Ted Cruz would respond to that. Um, I, I shudder to think the way that Ted Cruz would respond to that. I mean, I, you know, it, it really does that when you, when I hear those responses, it makes me question a lot of things about, um, you know, who they surround themselves with, who they think they are representing, who their constituents are, who they think they are delighting with comments like that. I mean, it is, I mean, it's really astonishing to me that they can actually look back over the history of the court, look back over history from barely two years ago and act so shocked and appalled about, uh, you know, Biden's decision and the necessity to a great degree um, for that kind of decision and, you know, and I'm also just sort of struck, was really struck by the, just the sheer disingenuousness of so much of it. I mean, you know, Senator Susan Collins getting, you know, like, you know, all of her concerns in a, uh, in a huff over, you know, <laughs> the sudden politicization of a Supreme Court nomination. I, I listened to it and I just thought the degree to which you're contorting yourself in order to oppose what at this point is still an unnamed nominee is just remarkable to me. I mean, I just thought, why not just hold your ire until you actually have someone that you can be offended by? But instead, I, I mean, I do feel like a lot of this is you know, sort of in lieu of being able to block a nomination or block a confirmation, the goal is to just make sure that whoever is nominated has a giant asterisk next to their name. And then, you know, to sort of say that, you know, this asterisk is, um, you know, by default, it's like, no, it, it, it will only be there because you have decided to put it there. Robin, you've written a lot on first ladies and female politicians. What's the difference between sexist commentary on how a woman looks and relevant commentary on the political message clothing sense? So how many different senators put you up to that question? No. <laughs> I mean, I would say that the difference is that I hope in my writing about um attire and appearance, um, you know, I try to keep to what I think the messages are and the, the communication capacity of attire is. Um, you know, I have always said that, you know, my sort of rules of, of engagement when it comes to writing about appearance, um, you know, are to focus on those things that people make conscious decisions about. And they make conscious decisions about how formally they want to be dressed, 
about whether or not, uh, you know, certainly for male politicians, um, whether or not they're going to take off that suit jacket and roll up the sleeves, which, you know, I have always said is sort of the universal um, symbol of I'm about to speak earnestly to you now. <laughs> um, you know, I think all of those gestures go into the whole sort of stage play of politics. Um, you know, I don't write about, you know, people's weight and the size of their nose and, you know, things like that. And believe me, I have gotten emails from readers who have said, oh, you know, why don't you write about, you know, how heavy so-and-so and so-and-so is or, you know, or how someone is just unattractive in their um, estimation. To me, that's when you get into completely unfair territory and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Mm-hmm. You extensively covered the Obamas during their eight years in the White House. How did you see the conversation around fashion, in particular Michelle Obama's fashion, in the context of first ladies of the past? And what did you make of Melania Trump's fashion in comparison? Well, when um, the Obamas were uh, in the White House, I uh, was covering Michelle Obama in like a very uh, official capacity. I mean, my beat was um, the East Wing um, for about a year and a half. And, you know, it was a great time to write about the First Lady because essentially everything was a historical moment. It was a first. And, um, you know, it was interesting to see the way that the culture responded to her, um, the way that she engaged with the culture, how she began her sort of rollout as, as First Lady with something quite as, as she, you know, later put it, something that was, you know, quite um, humble and hopefully uncontroversial. A garden. I planted a garden. Um, and, you know, it just sort of all began from there. And she was, I thought, really masterful in the way that she used fashion. Um, I mean, she, I think, recognized that, you know, part of what is attached to the first lady is interest in her attire. And, you know, that's for a multitude of reasons, um, not the least of which is that so often she um, doesn't have a speaking role. She is in the picture as a symbol of, of something, you know, sort of a Rorschach uh, symbol, if you will. And mm-hmm. so her the clothes speak volumes. Um and I, I I love the fact that she decided that if there was going to be a spotlight on my clothing, I want my clothing to say something that is um, that is thoughtful and is articulate, and you know sometimes may be um, you know full of just sort of delight and charm, and sometimes is about diplomacy, and sometimes is about diversity and inclusivity. Um, I mean, I, I think her, her clothing set, it was great. It was absolutely great. And there was a reason um, why the fashion industry absolutely adored her. And it was because she was a free-ranging fashion consumer. You know, I mean, she wore everyone from the most established designers to people that, you know, about five people had heard of. Um, And that delighted them. 
And she treated the fashion industry like an industry that was contributing to the cultural conversation and to the economy. And, um, you know, it's been really hard for First Ladies, um, you know, previously to do that because they often, I think, felt um, that if they did pay too much attention to their clothes, they everything else would just sort of get smothered by fashion commentary. I know, you asked me about Melania Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I wasn't writing so much about the First Lady at that point, but, um, you know, my thoughts about Melania were that, one, she dressed very much for herself um, as opposed to this idea of representing the sort of vastness and the nuances of American culture. Um, You know, she dressed to be photogenic. I always felt that she was very much sort of treating each public event like a photo op and was thinking about her angles and was thinking about how is this going to look, you know, in in the history books. Um, She felt no deep compunction to wear uh, American designers um, and she felt no obligation to elevate lesser-known um, American brands. And for me, I think when she wore that infamous Zara coat um, that said, you know, I, I really don't care to you, to me that was just kind of this nuclear fashion option in which she just sort of you know, used her clothing to spray everyone within like 50 yards of her. Um, and, you know, at, at that point, I think everything else that she wore just, you know, got smothered out by that one garment. Robin, who do you think is the most fashionable politician right now? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, you know, I, <laughs> I I have um, a, a couple of, of friends who are mentor stylists, and they can attest to the fact that I have been very weirdly obsessed with President Biden's pocket squares, and <laughs> it's it. I I don't know. It's it's a sickness. It's a distraction. I can't really <laughs> fully explain it. But I am so delighted in that pocket square because it is so precisely folded. It is always white. It has three peaks. And it's like he pulls it out when, you know, he is being very serious about something. And to me, it just is this little added flourish, this little detail that is so old school. Um, and requires just a little bit of extra effort. Um, and and I think it just sort of also reminds me of um, sort of men of like my father's generation who sort of felt like, um, you know, dressing up and dressing in a very polished way was 
kind of this this sign of respect for the situation and for themselves. And um, and I sort of love that he doesn't shy away from it because it is a bit of a an old school thing to do. And clearly I have given way too much thought to this pocket square. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, there, is there anybody whose fashion choices routinely make you cringe? Well, I mean, come on. I mean, the obvious one is, <laughs> you know, Senator Cinema, whose choices just baffle me, be- mostly because they are so, I think the technical term would just be they're out of the norm. Um, they're far afield from traditionally what we think of as sort of business attire. Um, and even as she's wearing these things that are so far afield, her response is, why on earth are you looking at my clothes and discussing my clothes? And so I just find that tension, um, I find it somewhat hypocritical because it's a bit like, setting your hair on fire and then saying, why are you sending fire trucks over here? Like, what's the problem? (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, your uh, assessment of cinema's fashion is much more restrained than mine, but we, I think, agree. Um, There are still some people in publications who kind of cordon off fashion criticism into this unserious or like for women corner. What sort of meaningful commentary and analysis do you think these people are missing out on by discounting fashion? Well, I don't think they're really seeing the world that's in front of them. And I don't think they're taking advantage of the full vocabulary that we have to communicate with each other. And I also think that they're sort of failing to see the inherent sexism in that. Um, you know, I am, I often compare sort of fashion coverage and sports coverage and the ways in which, um, you know, we approach sports coverage is with an incredible amount of gravity. And, um, you know, the fact that we attach patriotism to a baseball game or a football game and we don't see you know, the connection that fashion has to who we are and how we define ourselves, how we want to be seen by other people, um, the ways in which fashion can really um, send false messages or make us, um, you know, fall prey to stereotypes. Um, You know, I have just, you know, things like hoodies and work boots And, you know, I mean, there are so many just garments that have all of these emotions and historical references and stereotypes attached to them. And I think if we don't really consider that and understand it, then we end up making the same incorrect assumptions over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, and the other thing I would say is that When I first came to Washington, I was surprised by the number of women that I met who uh, enjoyed fashion, but really, you know, said that they refrained from talking about it um, publicly as if having a conversation about it was sort of immediately going to sort of lower their IQ by several points. And, you know, someone like much smarter than me um, 
you know, once said that we should not diminish the um, the pleasures that women take in their personal lives because that diminishes women. And so why we, you know, want to belittle fashion when it's so much um, like the passion of predominantly women, although increasingly, you know, more men for sure, um, you know, I think says something about the way that we value the joys and pursuits of women. Robin, thank you so much. Listeners, if you want to read more of Robin Givens' work, you can find her work at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. We will take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it good for you, great ingredients, helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount, text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And we're back. Alyssa, this is sort of a, a serious topic, I guess. So I uh, before I do our little quippy thing, I'm going to introduce our other panelists so we can get into the topic, which is checking in on people that we care about. First up, she is a writer for Hulu Solar Opposites and Star Trek Lower Decks, our resident Trekkie sci-fi nerd. Uh, you can watch both of those shows this summer. Grace Para, welcome. 
Hi, guys. Spicy little pepper. Very glad to be here <laughs> with everybody. Um, it's so lovely to see you guys. Hello. I haven't seen you like as part of the show since before my leave, since you subbed in. That's right. That's right. I, and it's it's fantastic to be to be back in this capacity. Alyssa and I had a wonderful time. Um, but it's so good to see you, Aaron Ryan. Oh my goodness, just glowing and oh. uh, full of all the wisdom. By the way, I'm I feel like I've been learning a lot from you um, these these weeks. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, and nobody does. So that's that's the main thing um, that I've learned from being a mom is nobody knows what they're doing. Speaking of moms, I want to welcome the newest official member of the Hysteria crew. You know her, you love her. You've heard her many times on the pod. She's a writer. She's a comedian. She does everything. She's great at all of it. Kara Clank, welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Greatest, of course, at being a mom where, <laughs> where I am. Unparalleled and undefeated in all ways. Yeah. <laughs> undefeated. <laughs> That's actually the name of my comedy album. Buy it now on iTunes. Oh, that is great. It has like the best cover art of any comedy album I've ever seen. And like, I got the real guy who did the Sweet Valley covers to do my album cover. Oh my That's God. That's incredible. He's like I an want older him to do, like, gentleman. If if I hadn't already gotten married, I would be like, I want that guy to do my wedding invitations. He can do, he yeah. I want him. I want him to do the next time I have a big life event. He can do the the illustration for that. But Kara, we're so excited that you're part of the crew officially. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me and bringing me on. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to get into something that is a little bit serious uh, today, a lot serious today, and that is the topic of checking in on people. Um, and I know that that sounds like very lighthearted. It sounds like a kind of circle back around business speak, but it's actually like a, a really serious emotional engagement with a person who might need it. Um, Alyssa, you and I were kind of discussing this topic yesterday over text, and I know you have some thoughts. So, you know, what are your thoughts on the the topic of checking in and what are your experiences with checking in on people? I mean, it's, it's really hard. There's no universal way to correctly check in on someone, right? Like it all depends on who that person is and how they sort of accept your inquiries, right? And so figuring out the people that you know, maybe that you haven't talked to in a while or who have been giving you like interesting answers to questions, I think it's just so important to say, like, how are you? And if it's like, I'm fine, it's like, no, 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 no. What's going on? You know, I think that's the problem is that so many of us think that nobody really wants the answer to what's really going on or how we really feel. And Aaron, what you and I were talking about is that like not that long, well, a couple of years ago, I guess at this point, my how time has not flown. Um, <laughs> I got into a pretty serious car accident and someone had checked in, not, not, didn't know about the car accident, but they were just kind of droning on about their own life. And I was like, Hey, by the way, just FYI, I got into like a pretty bad car accident. And they were like, really? And I explained it to them. And then weeks later, and I was really fucked up. Like I still don't drive normally. Like I'm super, I'm so stressed. I haven't been able to get over some of the things I used to love to drive. And now I don't. And this person the conversation kind of came back up because she was like, well, why don't you just drive down to see me? And I was like, well, because it's like four or five hours and I haven't done that. And it's really stressful. And she was like, whatever. And then when she saw me, she's like, oh my God, you were like really hurt. And I was like, yeah, dude, I got fucking braces on both my arms. Like it was bad. And like, I thought to myself, like, what did I not communicate? Like I blamed myself. Like, what did I not communicate about my accident or how I was feeling that it led her to believe I was like, 
fine. And mm-hmm. I kind of try to use that, I think, when I'm when I'm checking in on other people because I know that at the time I thought I was being really honest, but I also know that I never want to make it seem like I'm trying to get attention. And I think that that's what we have to be really clear about is that when someone asks you how you are, like they're asking because they do want the answer. And if they are asking just because they think they're doing a good deed, well then drown them in your problems. Like that's (laughs) like, they're not going to get they're not going to get some like, oh, you know what? I went and asked all my friends how they were today and everyone's fine. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't get a gold medal. You don't get your brownie badge for that. Like, you know, so that's why I, when I am asking to anyone listening, if I ask you how you are, I am looking for the actual answer. Don't, you know, don't don't tell me you're fine. You've blocked out time in your schedule to like take in Let's whatever. get in it. Let's do it. I'm here for it. Okay, I'll take an edible. Who cares? We'll get into it. <laughs> Kara, I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on checking in with people and getting checked in on. Well, I, <laughs> I, lo- I love Alyssa just coming out to the world saying, I care. I want to <laughs> know. I do think that a lot, some people though are just going through like, the social movements of it. Like, hi, how are you? And when you start to tell them something real, you sort of can see some people shut down and be like, I don't actually know how to handle this with you, Um, which I think is interesting. I think I am a person who I don't really show a lot of vulnerability to people. So when people say, how are you? And I say, fine, no one really presses me anymore. I recently actually over the weekend had a dear friend of mine pass away. Mm. And um, I mean, that's okay. I only bring it up to say I've had a few people like check in on me over text in the past few days. And even though it like completely makes me break down and start crying again, it does make me feel better. You know, like it does make me feel better just to have people say like, just, you know, I'm thinking about you. And like, in, I guess I'm, I guess now I'm talking more about like a, how are you in the wake of something big more than just a day to day? How are you? You know, there's obviously big differences and nuances to all social interaction, but I mean, how more recently was I checked in on yesterday? You know, like mm-hmm. so I'm being checked in on actively, but I also try to be active like the way that Alyssa's talking about and say like, how are you? Like, can we FaceTime? Like, can we catch up? Like if you think something's going on with someone more than just a cursory, you know, check in. Mm-hmm. I love a like, or just saying like, I've been in this exact position or I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I don't want to turn it around and make it about me. You know, mm-hmm. I get like, and, but I also think just saying to like, I was speaking to my friend who passed away. I was speaking to her sister and I've also lost a sibling. So I was just saying, Hey, you know, I- I've been here and I can, I can, Like, I know exactly, you can absolutely tell me to fuck off. You can absolutely tell me that you don't have time for me right now, or you can unload everything on me, you know? So I think just making sure people know that you understand, like, where they're coming from in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. I guess, in as Mm -hmm. many ways as you can. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just shared so much tragedy. I'm so excited to join the Hysteria family. Thank you. Oh, this is a a place where we ask, how are you? We want the answer. This is an hour and a half podcast. We've got to fill it with answers to how are you. (laughs) Grace, how are you? <laughs> I'm feeling I'm feeling great, guys. Um, but if you have an extra hour and a half, let's get started. Um, buckle up. Um, no, you know it, what's so interesting. I I, I do feel I, I feel good. Uh, by the way, partly because I'm so excited to talk about this subject. It's been on my mind a lot for a couple of reasons. Um, 
First of all, because I think what's interesting about what what uh, we've already been discussing today is the nuance of the medium that you use to connect with someone can rapidly uh, change how what kind of a reaction you get, uh, which is to say that sometimes sending a, a quick text to say, hey, I'm thinking about you, how are you doing, is uh, is enough. Sometimes it requires a call. Sometimes it requires a FaceTime. Sometimes it requires a, an in-person conversation. And what's tricky is navigating all those different mediums. That is something that I, I really, I don't have a universal answer uh, for. But I will say that, again, this is part of why I've been thinking about this recently. I am a huge advocate for the voice memo. So not picking up the phone and calling, but just leaving a voice memo via text message, via iMessage rather, or via WhatsApp, uh, which is basically my voice saying whatever I want to say, but not on the phone so the other person can receive it and respond whenever they want to. It's kind of a more intimate way to connect without the pressure of needing a response right then and there, which I've found in recent months to be an awesome way to reconnect with people that I haven't necessarily connected with in a long time. Because, and I'm sure this is the same for you ladies, sometimes it can be very intimidating when too many weeks or months or even years have gone by since last totally. you reached out to somebody. It, mm-hmm. it can be really tough. It's like, oh, where do I even begin? So much so that sometimes you're just like, ah, I'll just wait until they reach out to me. But I've found that the the intimacy of a voicemail um, in the form of a voice memo is actually a very like s- kind of soft way to uh, approach a relationship with somebody and, and allow for, sure, it can be five minutes of bits, but it can also, in that time, um, tends to be uh, enough time to let somebody really get into the, the the deeper stuff that they that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise via text. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the thing I really advocate for. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have any experience with the voice memo, but ooh, is it ooh, Grace? That is that is such a good idea because one, someone hearing your voice can really engage them, and also it's like you hearing their voice, you can kind of sense a bit sometimes where they are. And also like straight up calling someone. I don't know about you guys, but when someone calls me who hasn't called me in a while, I'm like, did someone die? Like, like yeah. that is, right. it's it's immediately like something bad has happened. And yeah. then you, you're like, oh no. And then you talk to them and you're like, oh, you're fine. All right, bye. <laughs> and it doesn't have the obligation of a voicemail, which right. feels like you have to return it. And you got to check it. I don't know. There's something yeah. I like that is like even softer from a voicemail from to a voice memo. I totally. like totally. You know when I use it a lot also with group texts, and I think the the the, the concept of the group text is great in a million different ways. But in in some instances, it's fantastic to be able to casually gauge how somebody is doing without um, needing to necessarily straight up ask. Uh, and you can also send voice memos to the group too. And again, sometimes like you'll get a private response from somebody if they can sense something or vice versa. Uh, I really recommend it. I really recommend it. Wow. Kara, you mentioned this, uh, and I think, Alyssa, you and I have talked about this, and Grace, I know that you do this. Um, We are all women who project having it together and, like, don't like to seem as though we need things from people and don't, because, and I think for me, I can't speak for you beyond, for you all beyond this. For me, when I'm feeling down or when I'm going through something hard, I am aware of how heavy it feels to me. And I am really, really hesitant to burden somebody. And I'm using like very big air quotes there. I feel as though I'm burdening somebody when I ask for help or when I just need somebody to talk to. And usually when it gets to the point where I'm like asking for you know, yes, I do need to talk. I I will spend the whole time crying because I have not tended to my needs totally. to the point that I have this huge backlog. So 
as like strong women who project strength, even when things are going poorly, how do we reach out to our friends who are like that? How do we know to check in our, on our friends who are projecting strength? It's tough. Like, <laughs> like Alyssa, what, like you're somebody who I remember when you went through, when you had the, the car accident, I remember how shook, shook up you were. I wasn't aware as you were going through it, how traumatic it was for you. And like, as your trauma was forming, I wasn't aware of that. Um, and I wish that I would have been more proactive about talking to you. I know I'm not the friend who tried to make you drive somewhere. No, but I think you I were not. But I think I could have been a better friend. So like, no, let's use that as, no. let's use. Because here's the, here's the, here's the example is that I knew you supported me. I told you what happened. You were immediately like, what can I do? What's happening? I knew that if I needed to unload, that I could call you and unload. The reason what this person did was so traumatic is because they were actually asking something of me. And I was trying to explain so gingerly why I couldn't do it. When, you know, now I look at the time I was like, should I have sent pictures of my bandaged arms? Like, what the fuck? And it's because I was actually telling her the truth. She just wasn't listening. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's Alyssa. She'll bounce back, you know. But like, since then, there are these weird things. Oh, this is like, I'm going to get super weird, you guys. But like, growing up, it's so weird. But growing up, when my Oma and Opa would come visit, I would get so upset when they would leave because I was like weirdly aware at the age of th- two or three or four that like they could die, right? There was some weird thing about dying and I'd get so upset because I'd be afraid they were going to die before I got to see them again. And Aaron, I think I was <laughs> texting with you about this. It's like gone and it kind of subsided. But then since the car accident, there are weird things that happen to me, right? Like I don't want to put the Christmas decorations away because I love Christmas and I'm afraid I'm going to die by the time Christmas comes around again or like all these weird things that were triggered. And so finally one day I was like, you know what, Alyssa? This seems like a burden that you could ease. And I talked to my doctor and I was like, Doc G, like I'm super stressed. Like ever, I keep getting these waves of things. And he, because also it's not just about being honest and checking in with your friends. It's also about being really honest with yourself and your medical community. And Mm -hmm. I said to him, I was like, look, this is really stressing me out. I don't know why this is happening. And he's like, Alyssa, it's been a pandemic. We have been isolated. There are all these things that are happening. You cannot control what your brain is doing right now. And we tried new medicine, which I was like, Aaron, tell me if I act like a freak, I'm on new medicine. But like, <laughs> but you know, if he had not been so responsive and open to hearing what I had to say, I could have just gone on with my silver Christmas tree still up because I was like, I don't, I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Even if I did leave my husband a note that was like, if anything ever happens to me, I'm in the hospital, put up Christmas lights. Um, but like those weird things like make me feel better. But that is, you know, for me, it's like for us checking in on our really strong friends, it's like, Aaron, when you were pre- when after you had the baby, you straight up said to me, I'm like, how are you doing? You're like, you know what? I need you to like check in on me and see how I am doing and what's going on with me. And I was like, girl, got it, on it. And like you said that, and that was, it's like you also have to learn, I think in some ways, to count on the people you know you can count on when you're the person who's like looking for help. Don't go to the friend who's like, what do you mean you're not going to drive four and a half hours to <laughs> celebrate me? Uh-huh. Um. Kara, I want to talk a little bit more. I mean, I know that this is like sensitive, so if you need to stop, yeah, no, we, can, no. we can stop. I open um, the door. <laughs> um, 
so, you know, I'm, I'm new to parenthood, but one of my, a lot of my friends between my college friends, I think there's 17 children cause you know, oh Catholics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but one of them, uh, was on when she was on a trip with her kids, their dog died back home. Mm. And she was group texting the group chat. And she was like, I have to somehow she's in the car. Her daughter doesn't know the dog died. Um, and she does know, and she's broken up about it, but she also has to tell her, her daughter, you know, that her, their doggy died. And, you know, she's just, it, it really kind of crystallized the way that parents need to project strength for their kids. Um, so how do you, Kara, as like a parent with two kids, like, how do you balance like being there for your kids, but also like being honest about your own emotional needs with like your friends and adults who love you? Yeah, it's, um, it's tough. And I know my husband, like in the last few days has been like, am I doing enough? Can I help you? Like, is this, you know, cause he's not always, you know, men in general, I don't know if I can generalize all men, but he, you know, he's like, I'm so sorry. Like he, he doesn't really know like what the next step to take is always. So it has been difficult. I mean, you definitely, you know, my daughter saw me crying and was like, what's wrong? And I just said, oh, I'm just sad. You know, I'm not, she's two and three quarters. I don't know if I can fully, and she's met my friend who passed away. So I didn't want to be like, remember my friend who had the cute dog you liked? She's in heaven now. Like, I didn't really feel like that was the conversation. So for me, a lot of it is waiting till they're asleep to cry. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I do think that, um, I do think that your kids help you in a way. Maybe that's just my my way, but like I've just been like, okay, I got to keep it together for my kids. And in and in the past I've thought I'm the oldest of six kids. I thought I got to keep it together for my brothers and sisters, you know? Like so for me it it helps a little bit to have like a, a some kind of like um outside structure that's like propping me up, but then I do have to know that there's people around that will sort of help me if when I eventually have a breakdown because I will. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that like answers your question, but it is. Yeah, there, there's. Uh, it's it is tough. You have to like be. You have to be a little bit tough for your kids because you don't want to introduce like trauma into your kids' lives in like a in a, in if you don't have to. I guess. I mean, obviously, there's going to be trauma. There's going to be loss, but. Um, this is why I don't have a dog, you know? <laughs> I know. I, I don't remember who wrote that pets are tiny tragedies, but like I am now like, oh crap, now this baby is getting to know my 17, 17-year-old cat. Like this is yes. not, this is going to end with me having to have a tough conversation with this baby. But the other thing is kids are so resilient. Yeah. Like I think you can tell kids things. I feel like the first three years are like a do-over, right? They just kind of forget every. Like at three years old, it's just wiped. So you're like, whew, get to try that again. Get in all your murders, all your, you know, genocides. Get them all in now. (laughs) They won't remember. My daughter's almost three, so I'm getting to the point where the memories are about to be recorded. So I've got to really clean things up. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, So, Kara, you brought up something super interesting, and I'd love to to hear you talk more on it, Grace. Um, Kara mentioned the sort of, like, structure that depends on you, kind of keeping you up. Um, And I know that for you and your family, you've been sort of uh, part of that structural strength. Um, How, like— how has that, how do you do that from far away? How do you provide strength to other people in your family, even people who are maybe older than you? Yeah, it's, it's, it requires, um, I, 
it's a lot of it's a lot of texting honestly it's a, it's a lot of using using these phones which i i hate like my dependence on it but what's really nice is being able to connect with anybody the second that i think of them and, and i think that that's um kind of key at least for me the experience has been um i had advice actually given to me uh, many years ago from a friend who actually said this in reference to when she expressed gratitude to um god she's she was a religious person and she was like i just thank god anytime it comes to mind and i try to apply that to reaching out to people especially to my close family um anytime i think about them i just reach out it's just a quick like yo what's up it's a quick meme it's nothing it's nothing too deep because for me the idea of having to have an overwhelmingly long catch up conversation is is a lot and it feels it feels exhausting but in those moments of just being able to reach out very briefly it's like it's like um uh, my mom always says is how do you eat an elephant bit by bit it, it's sort of you know it, it's the same approach I think when it comes to maintaining the structure of those support systems it's not like hey I'm gonna have one very long conversation with you twice a year it's I'm gonna send you a text saying yo what's up bitch hope everything's great love you mom I don't call my mom a bitch but um, <laughs> you know something something like that and and also I will say that sometimes it's it's not as bald as a how are you text um, that allows me to get into a kind of a deeper conversation with people and feel like I'm maintaining those relationships. It's often about completely unrelated things. I have a brother who's obsessed with Tom Brady, for instance. This has been a very, as you can imagine, traumatic week for those in the uh, Tom Brady camp. So sometimes it's not, you know, and then and come to find out my brother's kids, my niece and nephew have COVID, which I would have found out one way or another. They're fine. But, you know, they're resilient. Talk about kids being resilient. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like it, it, it came up because we were talking about something else and mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, by the way, here's this thing. Thing that's happening. So um, what I will say is, is tricky. And tell me if you guys have had this experience. I feel like that structure works when there is a clear definition of who you are in your friend or family member's life uh, mm-hmm. and vice versa. What's tricky is when you really want to reach out to someone and all you get is that archetype that you mentioned, uh, Aaron, which is the, I'm a strong woman and everything's fine. And mm-hmm. I have this with a, a friend. Uh, and honestly, this has been a a reason why I'm no longer close to this person because every time I do reach out, it's always sunshine and rainbows. It's always, everything's great. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything's really good. Everything's really mm-hmm. good. How are you? And this happened a few years ago. My dad passed away a couple of years ago. And when I told her about it, and, and it was a moment where it was like, let's talk. Like, I'm ready. I, I, I've i been, you know, dealing with this and I, I want to express this to you. This is a person I, I knew, uh, you know, for 15, 20 years. So she, she knew my dad. Um, she tried to steer the conversation into, but you're okay, territory. It was like, but you're oh, okay, right? Yeah. But you're okay, right? And yeah. and I was like, I'm I'm not actually. And I felt bad, even though this is somebody who I really thought was on the same page with me about what we could share with each other. It was very, it was, it was striking. And those to me are the difficult kinds of interactions where you feel like you can be vulnerable with someone and you have made it very clear that they can be vulnerable with you. But for whatever reason, there's a barrier. Um that's that's put up and 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 I, I I'm just kind of curious if you guys have had a similar experience and what the tactics yes. are when that arises. Yeah, yeah, I call those happy ending conversations where yes. it's like, but it, yes. but everything, but the dog lived, right? But you're okay, right? But you're <laughs> gonna be, but like it's gonna get better, right? It's like I I think that it's good to be reminded that it's going to get better. Like that that is helpful sometimes, but sometimes it feels like people just want to skip like a rock over the sadness and get right to me feeling better. And it's like, I need to talk about 
why I'm hurting right now. I don't need yeah. to talk about when I won't be hurting. When I'm not hurting, we don't need to talk about this. Right. You know, like, <laughs> like it, it's such, it is such a thing, Grace. And I think this is like, it's a, it's a similar conversation to uh, when you tell somebody about like your choice when it comes to like, you know, if you don't want to get married and you tell like an older person you don't want to get married and they're like, you might change your mind. It's like, yes. no, no, no. Like you don't get like, oh my God, <laughs> this conversation does not get to have a happy ending for you. This is a conversation right. for me. Such it's so a thing. funny. Like the, what you're describing, I feel like is me in my twenties. Like in my twenties, like if any, I ever had a friend that said, I'm not going to have a kid. I'd go. Just wait. You might want to. Because like, I think sometimes we all just get the bug and we want to. Like, we're all going to want to. And like, now I would never dream of saying anything like that. And that's not what I think anymore. But I used to have conversations like that in my 20s where I was like, okay, but like, how do we make it better? Like, where's the Band-Aid? How do we just move on? And now in my, 30, in my 30s and beyond, I'm just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and listen to what you have to say. Like, and that's mm -hmm. what I want from somebody too, is just to sit and really listen and go, yeah, that sucks. Like my husband has a way of trying to completely be like, yeah, but, um, you know, well with me, it happens this way. Or like with me, I know this helps. And I'm always just like, I just want you to sit there and listen to me and say that fucking sucks. And that's right. like basically it. I mean, mm -hmm. if they're asking you, how do I stop feeling this way? How do I um, move forward? Okay, now we can start to work on like future, you know, plans, strategies. But like before that, I think, yeah, you just sit there and like you are a receptacle for their feelings and emotions and thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk really briefly before we have to move on to the next portion of the show. I want to talk briefly about the hesitance that I think most people have for like toward asking for help. Like I'm always, like I was saying, I always feel like I'm going to annoy people. I don't want to be annoying. But I mean, then I kind of think whenever somebody asks me for help, I'm never annoyed. You know, like there's, a, discon there's a disconnect between what, uh, what I think people are going to think of me and how I think when other people act like that toward me. So that's like something that I kind of, I still kind of, have a hard time asking people like, Hey, I need help. But you know, like Alyssa, when I told you that, like, after having a baby, it, I was really miserable because it's miserable right it's after a lot. you have a baby. <laughs> um, I thought that was like one of the first times that I was like, you know what? I do need something. Here's yes. what I need. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wonder what your thoughts are all of you on, um, getting over the hesitancy in asking someone for just a little shoulder to lean on. You know, you know what I, I realize is a little like a, like a sneaky little tactic that my brain uses is if if I, I have to say, obviously have many issues asking people for help. But if I do, I still feel like I need to provide possibilities so that like it's basically a very binary like, hello, should I do A or B? So I'm doing all the work. I'm still just saying right? like, I feel like a systems analyst where I'm just like, okay, yes, I need help. But the question is, do I do this or do I do this? And it's like sometimes we have to remind ourselves that we it's okay if we don't know the answer and we don't have to do the work for somebody else and provide them with possibilities for whatever we need a solution to. Um, I, I have been thinking about this lately. This is so dumb. But oh, So I have a, a pilot that's in contention right now and it's 
It's that like very, you know, that that period where you're just like, oh, is this going to happen? What's going to happen? And and I truly don't know what mindset to have. Should I have the mindset of like, I'm fucking a powerful manifester and this is going to happen and it's already happening? Or should I set it aside and like not think about it? And so when I have asked a few friends in the last couple of weeks, like, you know, they asked me, how am I doing? And I'm like, this is, this is where I'm at. I have to provide those two possibilities as though there is a binary rather than just being like, I don't know. I fucking feel weird about this. Help me. And Mm -hmm. I think that maybe it is a sign of increasing strength if we can express vulnerability and not feel like we have to do all of the work and go through all of the steps in our brain to make it more bite-sized and uh, ingestible for somebody else. How you do that is very difficult. It comes with, I I guess, more uh, self-awareness, which, you know, at least I'm at the point in my life where I'm aware of the tactics that I'm using. Um, But how I get past that is very, is very difficult. So. No. Well, you know what I think though, also about sort of, you know, as we get older, I don't know about you guys, but it's like, we have a lot of friends, right? But we have less and less time. So it's like, who are the people you are going to invest your time in? And this is like, oh God, the thought of saying it, I already think I might cry, but it's like when a month ago, my cat Petey was really sick and I knew that he was going to pass away. And we were recording this show and I sent an email to everyone. I'm like, you guys, I'm so sad, but this is what's happening. And I really need your help. And every single person who produces this show and all the co-hosts that day were like, we fucking got you. And what that showed me is that like, I can count on these people and they can handle me being sad and they can handle me needing help. And then there are people who I've known way longer than all of you guys who are like, it's going to be fine. I was like, I am literally not fucking fine. I have so many things I have to deal with this week. And all I want to do is like lay on the bathroom floor with him. And I just think that those people who don't respond, I just don't invest in anymore. Right. If you can call people and be like, I need your help. I'm so sad. And they can't handle it, then like, why are you spending your time on them? That's kind of my thing. Cause then it gives me more time to invest back in the people who are there for me and for whom my tears and emotions, which as you guys can see, I started crying. I'm fine now because I got my words out. You were <laughs> like, like like a faucet, girl. I like mean, was- look, now I'm fucking back. But it's because, but that's what makes me feel better when I hold my emotions in and don't say what's bothering me. It is a fucking slippery slope of like Mm. depression spiral. And when I say it, I feel better. And so anyway, that is like, there were people who, you know, when I did try to be like, hey, you know what? Because I didn't want to burden the co-hosts because I was like, we all got to get through this show. But I was like, I can't not, I have to. And so I'm sorry, guys. And everyone was like, we got you. And, And that is the greatest, and that is the greatest feeling when that expression of love is reciprocated is my point. And so I just think we should cut out the people who can't handle the real feel because I love I love that I love I love that kind of like the 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 brutality it seems brutal but it's really it's it's uh it's it's being protective of our own selves and our own time and I like yeah. it I like it we don't we're not teenagers anymore we don't have to it's a high school we have to see these people day in and day out mm-hmm. you know because our schedules like right because homeroom will be awkward Kara <laughs> mm-hmm. do you have any uh, final thoughts first show? I just say all the time your 30s and your 40s are for cutting people out yeah I oh I have been cutting people out left and right so I agree if you're not yeah. I totally agree. I mean, that's the test. That it's a. Te- I hate to say it. It's a. It's a test. Like, 
And if someone's not going to be there for you when you're at, at your lowest or at your at your most uh, vulnerable and, and in need, then what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time? Go have cocktails with somebody you like and that will help you. Mm-hmm. Totally. Be ruthless about taking care of yourself. I think that that's a really yes. important thing. Yeah. Be, be ruthless about it because, yeah, nobody's got time. Life is short. Um, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got Sanity Corner. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. And welcome back. We have almost reached the end of the show, but not quite. We're going to take a little bit of time to share with you things that make us feel sane in a world that has gone apeshit crazy. This is Sanity Corner. Um, Alyssa, do you want to start us off this week? What's keeping you sane? Oh, have I got a good one. Guys, I am, I think, and Caroline, I producer, understands this about me. I I don't really love reality TV, but I do love some TLC reality shit. And I am obsessed and have been obsessed with Sister Wives for like (laughs) 10 years. And let me tell you something. Just when I needed a little pep in my step, I found out that third wife, Christine, second wife, third wife, Christine, left Cody Brown, who I think is one of the most insufferable human beings on the fucking planet. And I was like, I just, it's, it brought me such joy. And I just, I've, I'm so curious about polygamy, which is why I've always watched the show. And I think all the different wives are so interesting. But anyway, fucking Christine dumped his ass and I can't wait to watch the second part of the tell all this weekend. Wait, can oh. I say one quick thing, Alyssa? The girl who colors my hair just came to my house to do it last week and was telling me how much she loves sister wives. And she's like, I wish there was a podcast like yours about sister wives. And I think there's a hole in the market. And I feel like I'm just oh my saying. God, it I is know the you're most, a busy woman, but the dynamics a, a are podcast. unbelievable. And oh. anyway, so I was like, you go, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will, uh, I'll go second. My sanity corner is also a TV sanity corner. Have you guys seen We Are Lady Parts? No. No. Is it Liz Winstead? Like part of No, no. It's no. a British TV show that is oh. about okay. So we are Lady Parts. You can stream it on Peacock. I just saw like a bunch of previews for it and ads for it on the internet because I was like, I am part of the target audience for this show. It is a British sitcom created by a woman named Nita Manzoor, and it is about a punk band consisting of entirely young Muslim women. And it is. The music is super catchy. Um, the acting is great. It is hilarious. It is touching. It's a world that... I've never really been inside. It feels like an invitation into a world. And that's like one thing I love about TV 
is really great TV feels like an invitation into a world instead of a creation of like a, you know, a fake multicam setup, whatever. Um, so I just love it. I, I can't say anything bad about it. I think that everyone should watch it. I think there's six episodes and they're all streaming on Peacock. I like devoured all of them in one night. It's so, so good. They do a cover of Nine to Five, the Muslim punk band does. Uh, and it is just really, really good. I, I like, I, I want to like rewatch it today. That's even talking about it makes me want to rewatch it. It's, it's so good. Because of you, I am now downloading Peacock. The one app I was like, I'm going to pass on Peacock. It is worth it. It is worth it. I have Megan Gailey's password. That's how I have Peacock. (laughs) (laughs) Kara, what is keeping you sane this week? Well, this week, I will say, normally it would be television. I would be talking about something television-related also. But last night, I took a tap class. I took an adult. That's amazing. I took an adult tap class. I have zero tap experience. I have dance experience, like jazz and stuff like that. But I... My friend and it's actually at the same ballet studio in my neighborhood where my daughter goes. <laughs> and like, I think we start, I started following their Insta or something and they had an adult tap class and my friend and I both had wanted to take it. So we went last night. It was us, one other woman and a teenage girl whose mom was there watching her and us. And it was really fun. And it was cool. Like, I just was like happy that I did. It's been a long pandemic. I haven't done anything out of the box or anything like different like that in a really long time. And I was just like, okay, this is something different. I haven't really like tapped into this part of myself in a long time. (laughs) No pun intended or pun intended. And, um, and yeah, it was like my friend, like afterwards, my friend was like, yeah, I feel like it like helps my brain, like just to learn a tiny like combination. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it just, it's, like I'm not looking at my phone for an hour, which I like. And mm-hmm. so I um I would recommend if anyone is thinking about starting something. I mean, we wear masks. It's it's there's only four of us, so it's very distanced. Um, <laughs> but you know, that was a fun sanity thing for me this week. That sounds so fun. Kara, I just have to say, we have been my my neighbors and I have been looking for a tap class for a year, but the t- the dance studio in town has not been operating. But let me tell oh. there is nothing. They, you put on those show tunes, you hear a little Judy Garland, you start shuffling off to Buffalo. It is the greatest <laughs> feeling. <laughs> it was fun. Okay. So Kara and I now live like kind of in the same neighborhood and yes. I'm, I am color me intrigued. We, oh, will, we will talk more Aaron, offline yeah. about You this. will crush the time step. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I will. We'll see. Uh, Grace, what is your sanity corner this week? I can't believe what a basic B I'm going to sound like when I tell you what my sanity corner is. But I really, I dug deep last night. I was thinking, Grace, what is it? What is it this week? Tell, tell the people they need to know. I got a Vitamix over the holidays. Oh, and I cannot believe how revolutionary it is. It is striking to me. I really thought that I knew <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought that I knew the heights of what a blender could do for me. I mean, I was like, okay, this is what I can expect from an at-home smoothie. Okay, this is what pesto is just gonna be like for me. No, my friends, Vitamix changed everything. I'm I'm drinking a green goddess smoothie off camera right now. Ooh, baby. I can't even taste the spinach in it. I can't even taste the kale. I can't even taste the celery. I mean, it is, and I'm mad because it's so expensive and it was, it was a gift and I'm grateful for it. 
really, it has changed everything. I just, it is, it has changed the way that I approach everything in the kitchen. I use it twice a day. I've used it twice a day since I got it. I cannot recommend it enough. Get yourself a Vitamix. It's worth the investment. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. It's one of those things that you see how much it costs and you're like, are you kidding? And then you try it and you're like, okay, it's awesome. It's like the Dyson, <laughs> it's like the Dyson air wrap. You're like, oh, are you yeah. fucking fine? Fine. Yes. My friend told me, put the Vitamix on your registry for your wedding. I go, it's 500. No one's going to buy that for me. It's so expensive. And then, you know, I had an uncle who had to bail at the last minute. He felt guilty wow. enough to buy me that Vitamix. Wow. <laughs> so if you're registering, just put it on there. You never know. Shoot Maybe for the, the group stars, will go in you know? On. Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Um, thank you, Kara. Thank you, Grace, for coming by. It was great seeing both of you. This was a really, I, like, let's, I wish we could just keep having this conversation. It was great. Um, Alyssa, thank you as always for being my ride or die. And thanks to the Washington Post, Robin Given for the great interview. And thanks to all of you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a crooked media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 